Welcome to this special episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where I'm very pleased to bring you a guest who really is someone who is fierce against the bad guys, especially the bad guys in the church. He is someone who has worked in one of the most messy areas in the church, uh, looking for, hunting down, if you will, uh, perpetrators of sexual crimes, pedophile priests, and the lot. And he's been doing this for many, many years, in fact, decades. We're going to find out how he does this, why he does this, and also how he sustains his Catholic faith while he does it. The greatest thing about Stephen Brady, though, let me tell you, is while he is a fierce defender of the innocent, he's also an awesome Catholic. He's got, despite being such a tough guy who does very tough things, a heart for Christ like very few. And you're going to get to meet him now. This is the John Henry Weston's show. Stay tuned. Stephen Brady, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John Henry. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, uh, Stephen, you do a lot of what many people might call dirty work. You are really in there getting the details, grabbing the... Not only do you have to see horrific things, but you have to dig and you get a lot of threats. Give us in a nutshell what you do and why you do what you do. Well, it all started with uh, with my children. They were all in school back in the 90s in the public school system. And the abuse, uh, the sex education program was pornographic. The problem, even though it was a public school, it was Catholic teachers from the local parish who were public school teachers and school board members who were Catholic extraordinary ministers and took a role in the church of the local parish. And my, my children knew this, so they were being introduced to this pornographic material by fellow Catholics that had more education than their father. And basically, I went around trying to stop things, and I eventually went to the Catholic laity, I mean the Catholic uh, clergy within the diocese, asking them, why won't the bishop do anything? Why won't the pro- uh, pastor do anything at the local parish? And basically, I started getting letters saying, don't you know? And that's when I started to get information on Bishop Daniel Ryan's predatory homosexual nature. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I started to interview some of the clergy that would talk to me. Others hated what I was doing. And basically, uh, I, I held a few press conferences when I got some firsthand testimony. And a young lady named Sandra called me from uh, Springfield. She'd seen some of the newspapers, Catholic papers, calling me a liar, didn't know what I was talking about. And this young lady who uh, was abused herself as a child, not by clergy, by family members and some of the state institutions. And uh, she said she was on the street for many years talking with these street kids, and she knew the ones that had visited Bishop Ryan. She gave me some of their names, and I located them. And I found eventually about six witnesses, six teenage boys, And what was so offensive and so troubling to me was I couldn't let this go when it came to me. I couldn't believe I was being condemned for stopping this, trying to stop it. But I always felt that, well, I'll get the information to the hierarchy and they'll take care of it. 
I was still very naive at this time. It basically started over defense of my own children. Anyway, I, Father Harden contacted me, Father Malachi Martin, Father Harden said I could work with him, Father Alfred Coons, who was murdered in 1998 while helping me, Father Fiore was helping me, many others, Father Minkler. And uh, finally, I began to find out that the hierarchy was the problem. I was, uh, I was ordered by the Vatican to keep my mouth shut. And uh, Cardinal George told me if I went public anymore, I'd be stuck with Ryan. And in a phone conversation with Cardinal George, I asked him, I said, Your Eminence, you mean rather than face embarrassment, you will allow this predatory homosexual to stay in power and destroy souls? And he wouldn't answer me. He wouldn't talk to me. And uh, so it just grew It just grew from there. And uh, it was after we started getting some publicity, the Wanderer started out with the first publication and uh, of the stories that I was running. Just the good Lord sent the right people along to help me. And uh, eventually, when uh, it, the information just started to come in from around the world asking for our help. And one individual from Ireland called me. It's been just a few years ago and asked to use my name and our group's name. And I asked him why. He said, because Mr. Brady, we know you care and we know you'll do something, even if it isn't successful. And what I began to realize was people were looking for something to hold on to. And it made my faith stronger because I saw what damage lack of faith was doing in the hierarchy within the priesthood. And it was unbelievable. I just started to dig more and more into the Catholic faith as I fought this, looking for answers, basically. And it was one story after another just came out. But hearing these heartbreaking stories from these families, from these victims, from these moms, uh, I visited several Illinois prisons, interviewing individuals, mental institutions. I, I think my one positive aspect is I don't care what anybody thinks of me. And my wife doesn't care for that attitude too much. In the very first newspaper article, I once told, uh, I told the reporter, I said, I once considered myself one of the world's biggest heathens. I got out of the service. A priest got a hold of me, straightened me out. I, wasn't, I just didn't attend mass regular. It was a fallen away Catholic. That's been many years ago in my early 20s. And my wife asked me, well, why did you say you were once the world's biggest heathen? I said, what can they say about me now, honey? What can they say about me? How can they attack me? When I admit I was no better than the next guy at one point, and uh, it just sort of grew from there. So many people would uh, abandon uh, the faith for this reason. In fact, a lot of people give this as the reason why they left the faith. Yet for you, your faith has remained strong. Uh, and you even describe now how uh, it, it sort of grew your faith. Uh, what do you what do you feel is the the reason for that, and and what would you suggest for people who are turned off the faith by the scandals that are going on? Well, the first thing that happened, I got Father Harden contacted me and wanted to work with me, wanted to help me, wanted me to help him under his direction, which I did, and that was a real blessing because I traveled to Detroit and met with Father Harden at Assumption Grotto. It's one of the few parishes I ever gave a talk in, not the parish, but the gymnasium at the school. And then the late Father Peter Muscari, I would meet with him. He got me an adoration early on. He told me, if you're going to get into this fight, Stephen, you got to do it right. And every Sunday morning at 2 in the morning, I had adoration. He had it right before me, which he'd give me direction. And he told me first right off, 
If you ever start to doubt your faith, Stephen, stop what you're doing. I took that very seriously. My faith actually grew, but uh, Father uh, warned me. He said, uh, the bishops, he said, look at, look at it this way, Stephen. You're back a rat in the corner, and he's going to come out fighting. And, uh, but he, he was born and raised in Chicago, although he was incarnated in the Springfield Diocese. And uh, it was just one thing after another. The, the, the horrific stories I heard, as I said earlier, just led me back to the faith and how important it was. I have seven children, and uh, one thing that Father Muscari told me that troubled me, he said, if the devil can't get you, Stephen, and your wife, he'll get your children. And that's something we had to watch out for because it's, uh, I've got a few children that have walked away from the faith. But when you've got these educated college professors and uh, priests telling your family members and your friends, your father doesn't know what he's talking about. He's crazy. You know, I've been called all kinds of names, everything but a Christian I've been called. And uh, what's so sad is most of the Catholics locally walked away from us. And my wife ran a pizza place business that she had and the kids worked at. We lost a lot of our business. But thank God for the Protestants. They made it up. And uh, what's funny is I was asked to join many Protestant denominations. I was asked to help. Uh, several detectives asked me to help investigations of pastors in the Protestant denominations. And I said, no. I'm going to take care of my own faith first. And uh, it just it just grew from there. One of the things that few people know about you, uh, and I've been privileged to uh, meet with you, um, is your deep faith. I, I think it's really astounding um, because the image of Stephen Brady that uh, people who, you know, read you or especially when they give you negative coverage in the media have of you is someone who is really fierce and an attacker and you do though have a gumption about you that you're you're ready to stand up to a bishop you're ready to um you know uh tell them off you're you're pursuing uh abuser priests um and you know them and you know the dark side of it um yet you have a a very deep and I honestly, I very beautiful faith. So that's been, it's been real, a real joy for me to meet you in person and, and see that in you, despite your having to do really the, the toughest work. One of the things that you were known for already decades ago was the discovery of this horrific uh, site of um, Catholic site, even uh, called Sebastian's angels. And uh, if you could give us a sort of, bit of a family-friendly description of what that was and um, where where that went and how you came to it. That was St. Sebastian's Angels, and it was brought to my attention around 1999. Because of the publicity I was getting, people contacted me, and, he, and an individual got a hold of me, a religious brother, actually, from California, who was actually a member of St. Sebastian's Angels. And it was a website for homosexual clergy. And to get in the group, it's a private group, but he got me access. To get in the group, you had to be in the Kennedy directory, and they were very careful. But uh, when I got in there, he started getting me, he, they, they sent me to an address that no one knew. You could stumble across it, but it would be very difficult to do so. But because they were sharing all their emails, I had access to all their emails. And the most educating part of this was the fact of reading 
emails between homosexual clergy. And you began to realize the damage that was done because these priests, in one case a bishop, were hearing confessions, were guiding children, so to speak. And what troubled me the most was there were several things. They described celibacy as not having relations with the woman. They went into graphic detail of what they could do, but since they didn't have sex with a woman, they were celibate. They actually believed this. And one of the priests was involved in a relationship with a, in Georgia, a Georgia priest, Atlanta area. He was involved in a relationship with some man he rented, rented, ran into at a health club. And he asked the group for prayers because his boyfriend had to go back to his wife in another state. And I'm thinking, this is, this is what goes on there, their warped sense of thinking. But the worst thing, and I'm not going to mention any names right here, but one of the individuals ran a not-for-profit group with the Mayan Indian missions. He traveled all over the country. He was a religious order priest. And he sent out a picture of himself and a Mayan Indian boy, and he named the boy. He was like 12 or 14. And he referred to the boy as not my current lover. And uh, I had the emails. I had a picture. What's so interesting is they threatened to turn me, the group threatened, once they found out I was involved, they threatened to turn me over to the FBI. They didn't know I was, they didn't know I was working with the FBI at the time. And uh, what is so, uh, so disturbing, not one American cardinal, and I contacted everyone, I told them I've got pictures of naked, naked pictures sent out by clergy, by a bishop. Of course, in these emails, they were also talking about bishops and their boyfriends. And I got a lot of information, gained a lot of insight into what was going on. But not one American cardinal, want, I said, what do I do with this stuff? I still had a little faith in the hierarchy at this point. It was 1999. And I finally got Cardinal George on the phone. I had his private cell phone number and everything. And I'd cut off ties with him when he uh, refused to do anything about Ryan. And uh, Cardinal George told me, well, I don't want to look at it. It may be a near occasion of sin. I just sort of grasped, gasped for air. I said, how do you go to a YMCA? And these aren't any women involved in this. How do you hear confessions? How do you solve any problems? And the hierarchy was not interested in this network of priests who clearly didn't believe in the Catholic faith. All across the country, around the world, as a matter of fact, one headed up a website for Magus Religious Order at the Vatican, and I identified quite a few of them. Quite a few of them were few foolish enough to use their parish email address and also for their diocesan email address, and they would put up their photos. But uh, the opening photo of the website was just, I won't go into it here, it was offensive. It was a video loop, but... Uh, so finally, we went public, and uh, Mr. Hitchcock, the professor down in St. Louis, did a story on it. Catholic, Father Fessio covered a story on it. And uh, I actually got in touch with Cardinal Ratzinger, who was a prefect of the Congregation for the Faith, I believe, at the time, regarding the bishop involved, Bishop Cockett. And uh, the cardinal called him into his office. And how the cardinal knew I was legitimate, once the cardinal called him into his office, he went back home to South Africa, the bishop, and started emailing the group, not realizing I was still seeing all the emails about this meeting. He made comments about Cardinal Ratzinger, the rat, he called him. And so I sent 
Cardinal Ratzinger the uh, text of the emails, and it showed that I did indeed have a direct line because uh, the the bishop did detail the meeting, what went on, made comments about his secretary, and uh, the bishop was eventually removed, but he's still a priest. I don't know what he's doing right now in South Africa. I get calls every now and then. But that was the really the most horrific thing. But the, after that, some of the stories I heard from these victims and their mothers, the one in Kansas City whose mother found the suicide note of her son, who was a 30-year-old professor, and she read the suicide note and realized what the family friend, parish priest, had done to him. And it's stuff like that that really moves you, gives, gives me more determination, because as a father of seven children, you know, your children are everything. I think if you're, if you're natural, if, if anything touches you, I've, I've helped in the birth of seven children. That's why I never had to be taught to be pro-life. I couldn't imagine anything else. I couldn't imagine the day would come when a mother would demand the right to kill her unborn child or the fact that a bishop would sit down and wine and dine some pro-abortion politician that have participated and promoted the murder of millions of children. And it's just one thing after another from there. So, These priests, now, have you followed up with any of them? Were they eventually uh, uh, brought to justice or anything like that? Or is this, it just sort of went away and they are still out there? No, there's quite a few that were dealt with, but only because of the public exposure. In 2002... I went down to uh, Dallas, where they had the conference on the Charter for the Protection of Children, which was a joke, because they're not following any of their own rules. But while I was down there, I had the pleasure of meeting Tom Pawkin, who was a Reagan White House attorney. And uh, he helped me. We did a, I did a CNN show actually debating a lesbian, and the CNN got mad at me because I wasn't interruptive or brutal enough. I was still being kind to the lady at the time. And I did several television or several uh, radio shows, and uh, some of the priests down there were dealt with. But one of them, I just mentioned his first name, Cliff. When when this was going on, he ex- he explained to the bishop and me that oh he he was just there to minister. He wasn't doing anything. There was nothing going on. And what's ironic is after this all transpired, a few years later, I found out that Father Cliff had married a priest from the Belleville Diocese. And in his wedding ceremony, in some of the material, he was explaining when he met this priest and when they became involved. He met him a year before I exposed him on St. Sebastian's Angels by his own notes and connotations. So he was actually telling me he never did anything like this. He was actually involved with the priest he eventually married. But uh, it, it was so troubling because most bishops didn't care. They didn't want anything to do with it. The, the individual... Father John, I won't lose his last name, he was eventually uh, taken care of. He, he set up the website when they uh, they caught him in a hot tub nude with a young man, a young boy. And uh, that uh, photograph came up. But uh, a lot of people came to my aid to help people that, uh, unfortunately, it was mostly women. We needed. I said, give me 10 good men to diocese, and we'll bring it back to where it should be. And it was mostly women, and God bless them. Uh, I had three ladies that volunteered to help in the office. and uh, But that, that was the most horrific. But uh, the story of uh, Jenny, it was a 12-year-old girl picked up at a bus station by a priest from the Springfield Diocese years ago. 
Jenny was uh, assaulted by a group of boys at the age of 12, and she ran away from home. Her mother was in a uh, mental institution. Her father was nowhere around. And a priest picked her up at the bus station and took her home as his niece. And the story she did, the story she told me, the, uh, the things that he did to her, and later, later in life, I later in life I asked her because I met with her several times. She's a grown adult now. He fathered two children with the lady, and the doctor that he sent her to when he impregnated her, I found out after he had killed himself was my wife's OBGYN. Once I asked Jenny, and this is what really killed me. This is one of two things that really set me off. I said, Jenny, why did you stay with him? Why did you not scream out? He said, Mr. Brady, she said, I thought that's what love was. And you got to realize this is a girl whose mother was in a mental institution. She was raped as a child. She didn't know anything. And this was a Catholic priest, someone that was supposed to help her. But the other most disturbing incident that really fired me up was early on, I met Frank Bergen. His name has been very public. Frank has AIDS. He's older now. I met him in an Illinois prison where I went to see him because I was told by Sandra that he was one of the boys visiting Bishop Ryan. And Frank was in his early 30s at the time. And I looked at him, and I was in the prison interviewing him. And I was, it almost brought me to tears. He's telling me a story. He was adopted out of St. Louis into a Springfield home, had some abuse issues, uh, not in the home, but there when he was there. And he ran away from home to get away from it. And he said he always loved his adoptive mother. And he said, Mr. Brady, at 15 years old, I ran away from home for the last time. I prayed my mother would come get me one more time. And she never came. You know, it's, it's stuff like that that just breaks your heart. And you realize the damage being done by the clergy. But it's Timothy Hugo, the one that eventually brought down Bishop Ryan, Brian Ryan had retired. They did a somewhat trumped-up investigation that really didn't even mention the word homosexuality. And Timothy had called the diocese to get some help and ended up in a phone conversation with Bishop Ryan, ended up in a relationship with him. And there was a domestic disturbance call at Bishop's house, his house he was living in after he stepped down and retired, Bishop Ryan. And uh, Timothy had caught the bishop with his boyfriend with Timothy's boyfriend, and there was a fight, a little scuffle. I got the police report, interviewed the neighbors, but it's when they finally moved Bishop Ryan out of the area. And what troubled me the most was not one bishop, not one cardinal, not one priest in the chantry loved Bishop Ryan enough to tell him the truth, to stop him what he's doing. And that sort of told me, it brought back the Benedictine that said it's not an act of charity to allow one's neighbor to run headlong into hell. No one, no one knew what Catholic love was. No one cared enough for any of these priests or bishops to stop it. Look what we have today. The enablers are the evil ones. Who has paid a price for protecting McCarrick? Nobody. Nobody. No one. Not one bishop is made to pay the price. What's uh, equally troubling is when I started to dig a little deeper, I found a lot of corporations, legally formed corporations, hidden corporations set up by the, some bishops. Not every bishop, but a few bishops were involved. McCarrick, Wuerl, uh, Supich, Lucas, and a few others. And they bought a $9 million building in Omaha. I had a PI helping me with a lot of public record searches. 
And it was sort of a private insurance corporation, but not every bishop was involved. And they had this $9 million building, which I hope to go visit soon. And uh, it was a rather large established building in uh, Omaha. And they had a lot of affiliated corporations around the country. But what's so disturbing is we have no idea how much money each diocese throws into these corporations. And they're legally formed corporations. The thing is, they claim to be churches, although I don't think they own a church building. I can find no legal connection to any diocese. There may be, except the fact that some of the bishops sit on the board of directors. And they're spending billions of dollars each year. They've got this $9 million building. I have no idea where the money comes from, how much comes in from each diocese. And the parishioners don't either. The people that the widows might, the people that donate this money have no idea where it's coming from. That's why RCF right now, the step we're doing, we're digging into the finances because everyone knows about the abuse within the Catholic Church. Everyone knows the faith is not being taught. But the key now is, I think, I'm working with federal and state and local law enforcement to some degree, and a lot of them are reluctant to take on the Catholic hierarchy. But uh, I found situations with illegal gambling halls, one bishop's bookie, uh, other information that's so disturbing. So we're trying to find out how the money's going, where it's going. And I think one individual I hope to talk to sometime is uh, Archbishop Vigano. He was apostolic delegate, and uh, he's come out. He said he's got a conscience now, and I have no reason to doubt that. But the key is, in my mind, any bishop who claims to be a good bishop or a good person, unless he tells us how the inner workings, how it goes on behind the scenes, how the money's moved around, uh, offshore accounts if there is any, so on and so forth, that's what is needed to straighten things out within the Catholic hierarchy, because clearly you can see from the lack of love within the hierarchy. By that, I mean, if you can promote homosexuals giving, getting communion, you can't love them. You can't believe in hell. You can't believe they're going to get sent there. If you allow a bishop to go on doing these things and you can't straighten him out, you can't publicly denounce what he's doing. It's such a lack of love in the real true meaning of the word love within the Catholic faith. So, I think we need to go after the money. We need to find out how it's moved around because the faithful Catholic deserve that at the very least, because I think it's the only way. Actually, I pray for a RICO lawsuit, God willing, if that should show up, because it's like these corporations I found, they were operating under, under the name of the Catholic Church, the church. They got the tax-exempt status, the same standing as the Catholic Church, the hierarchy. They don't have to report any income. They don't have to show how much money they're paying out. And it's just like the Conference of Bishops. They own a $60 million building in Washington, D.C. Every diocese has millions, if not billions of dollars in property. Why did the group of bishops need to buy a $9 million building in Omaha, Nebraska? So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, and that's what we're working on right now. And I have a lot of help, fortunately, from people. How can people help you? How can people find out your organization is called Roman Catholic Faithful? It's been around for a long, long time. Um, and uh, how can people help out? How can they get in touch with you? Well, we've got a, a website, rcf.org, www.rcf.org. 
and they could donate through PayPal. Because right now we're a small organization. We have no payroll. I don't receive a paycheck. Uh, we have nobody on the payroll. It's strictly volunteer. I work off a laptop a lot of times out of my truck or on the road somewhere. And uh, a lot of this is done, you know, on the fly. Most of our mon the money we get are, is spent on travel or investigations. But we need, we're being sued right now by one priest. I can't go into the detail. Out in California, it's the first time in 26 years, the first one that's ever followed through with a lawsuit. My attorney claims, Paul Jones, it's an unjust lawsuit, and he'll take care of it. But it's costly. And uh, so we're, we're fighting that right now. So we can use some financial contributions to help us continue to fight the lawsuit, and hopefully we'll uh, countersue and get all our money back, but mainly to keep funding the investigations we're trying to do. Because tracking the money, tracking the bishops, and I'm not accusing any individual bishop. I'm just saying there's billions of dollars being given to lawyers. There's billions of dollars being paid out in abuse funds. And the faith isn't being taught. So the faith will have a right to know where this money is going. We still need to, we still need, as you folks do, expose, give people the news. Let them know what's going on. But to ever end this crisis, I do believe we need to go after the money and we need to break up the uh, criminal enterprise, if you want to call it that, that may be underlying some of this nonsense that's going on within the hierarchy. And if you just look at the news reports, the Vatican bank scandals, that's public record. One gentleman hanging from a bridge in Italy years ago, billions of dollars with no accountability. So that's where the problem comes in. And that's what we have to focus on, I do believe. Stephen Brady, uh, in closing, just let me say, I want to thank you for what you're doing for the church. I know the heart with which you do it. I also want to say a thank you to your family, to your wife especially, who has allowed you to do this great work for the church, which is, it is, it's, it's totally disregarded and, and hated. You, you, you have, uh, you've been hated by many, many, and then you've watched them not pay attention when you've tried to give them the most obvious evidence that ever was. But uh, God bless you for what you've done for the church. Stay strong, and uh, we're praying for you. Thank you very, very much, John. Thank you very much. God bless you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. One extra thing that you can do, if you're interested in helping Stephen Brady and Roman Catholic Faithful do this really hard grunt work for the faith, please donate to our Life Funder set up for Roman Catholic Faithful. That's LifeFunder, L-I-F-E-F-U-N-D-E-R.com. Go there and please support Stephen in the great work he's doing, the very hard work he's doing for the church. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to lifesitenews.com because there we will always be.
But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.